if we didn't have the culture, if we didn't decide culture was important to us, we would not be this big today. Absolutely not. But the team has had a lot of growing pains, but the growing pains, you know, it's almost like trauma bonding in some, some sense, you know, we go through these high stress periods and we have each other's back. It just helps us to grow. If you're a tech leader looking to learn today's best practices for leading high functioning teams, you're in the right spot. In each episode, we learn from today's top tech leaders as they share their successes, their failures, and their lessons learned along the way. I'm Debbie Madden, and this is the Scaling Tech Podcast, your blueprint for scaling tech teams. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. I'm Debbie Madden. I'm the host of Scaling Tech Podcast. Uh, today, I'm so excited to talk to Brian Lanehart about scaling tech teams to stand the test of time, which, given the times we live in, is really important because um, times change, and it's important to, to do some things that last regardless of external circumstances. So, hey, Brian, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Um, so a little bit about Brian for those that don't know him. So Brian is the co-founder and president of Moment. Moment is a cutting edge financial services platform. They specialize in digital point of need lending and payments, which is really cool. Um, so Brian's got a wealth of industry experience, background in executive leadership, and as such plays a pivotal role in upholding Moment's vision, mission, and strategy, which that's a whole nother podcast I'd love to talk to you about. <laughs> Um, and he provides oversight across a bunch of different domains, including finance, fundraising, product, and tech strategy, as well as some more technical areas, analytics, AI, and ML, and then and then marketing, risk management, and so what I think I think that's all the things. So, yeah, that's pretty. That pretty much covers everything. That's a lot. <laughs> um, so so you know when I first met you, I realized that Moment is only four years old, and is over two hundred employees, about two hundred fifty employees. So you know, you founded Moment, and in the, in the early days, like, what did you build, and how do you approach it so that you prepare for this pace of scale? Because that's larger and faster pace than most. Yeah, I remember on our initial conversation, we took a little bit different approach. Perhaps um, we knew the business, and I say we a lot. I mean, I all those responsibilities are truly mine, but it's a team effort. You know, I have two co-founders. I can't speak high enough of, and less, less the leadership, the rest of the leadership team, and all the people we have. It is truly a team effort. It's not just myself, but we took a little bit of a different approach. I mean, most of us, all, all the founders were, you know, fairly mature, were older matures, we weren't college students, things of that nature. And we knew the business wasn't really going to work as a small business. It was going to have to achieve some point of scale. So kind of knowing that we took a rather dramatic risk, a bit of a change, a bit of a departure from most um, conservative entrepreneurial advice, where traditionally it's, you know, start small. See if you, you can strike a nerve with the industry with something, something small adjusted, modified, iterate on it, and sort of kind of build out from there. We took the opposite approach. We said with a lending platform, there's a whole bunch of things that go into a lending platform. We have consumer onboarding. Everything happens through a merchant. So we have merchant onboarding. We have merchant risk. We have merchant fraud. We have consumer fraud. We have KYC. We have KYB. We have consumer underwriting. We have an offers engine. We have payments orchestration. We had to build all of this because that was version one. Um, Moment exists kind of as the central hub of a network. If you look at our logo, there's three there's three pieces, and that's consumer, merchant, and lender. So we have lenders on the back end. We had to onboard, which was a piece of the pie. We couldn't get merchants without lenders. We couldn't get lenders without merchants. And of course, the most important piece are the consumers. So we took a slightly different approach in 2019. The months before we started up, you know, we did a lot of architecture. You know, the the initial data model was 350, 400 tables, and there were 
hundreds and hundreds of tabs and lucid charts on the business processes and you know rough um very rough sketches on the the consumer and the merchant experience and then once we kind of had all that um plus a business plan we went to an, an angel investor who who believed in the team saw how much work we you know we had put into this and said here's some initial funding go um but because we had put in so much work before we ever raised the money we were able to start development in i think it was july august of 2019 and by March of 2020, which, I'll, which is a, a humor state <laughs> if you're a historian, um, by March of 2020, we had a fully functioning version one. So we were able to onboard a merchant, underwrite a merchant, risk for a merchant, same with the consumer, pull credit, which was another miracle, had a lender, you know, um, and we could do the whole transaction. Um, a little bit of advice of those, <laughs> don't ever start uh, a company right before a global pandemic hits. Right, right. Um, and Good. so we were really slowed. <laughs> Great advice. Um, so our revenue was very greatly impacted 12 to 18 months because of COVID. You know, going back to we're primarily in home improvement lending at that time. We started in home improvement lending. We've expanded since then, but that means merchants are in consumer home. Everyone was like, the bank said, we're pulling back. I don't know what's going to happen. All of the merchants that are onboarded said the same thing. We don't, I, I don't know if feel safe going into a consumer's home right now. So we understand the pandemic. Everything stopped. The benefit, you know, so what we did during that sort of pause period is we really hardened the system because in March of 2020, we had version one. We had all those main components. They were, some of the pieces were kind of rough. They just sort of barely worked. You know, let's take the next nine to 12 months and really harden the platform. So yep. the the um, cognitive dissonance sometimes when telling the story is, wait, you didn't start with just a consumer application and then throw it against a bunch of lenders. Wait, you didn't try to get merchants onboarded into this platform. You did all of this turnkey. That was your version one. So it was it was a little bit of a different approach. You have hundreds of employees now, but that first nine to 12 months, was mm -hmm. it a lean team that built it all of It was very them? lean. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, it was very lean. So we invested heavily. We had one or two salespeople, and then everything else was product and technology. Okay. And so if a consumer called in, product answered the phone. If a merchant called in, product answered the phone, which okay. was good and bad. You know, it's bad because we're a small team, but it was really good because product really got to know our consumers, our, our users, our, user, our consumers merchants. So every evolution through that period was directly informed by our users directly. It wasn't calling into a call center that kind of got filtered. It was like, nope, you're talking to people building the platform. What can we do for you today? How can we make this thing better? How did you make that decision? Because it makes sense, but, but I haven't talked to anyone about that. In <laughs> oh, just put put the folks that are building the roadmap in the front the line. Phones. Like it makes uh, so much sense to hear you say it, but <laughs> did you just happen into that or did was that a conscious choice that you made in the early days? It was... It was a mix. We, you know, product is very passionate about our users. You know, we have a great product delivery team. Um, they wanted to be on the front lines, but it was also a reflection of, well, you had a million and a half dollars. That million and a half dollars was supposed to get you to not sustainable revenue, but revenue that would justify another, the next raise. And we had to stretch that that a million and a half dollars another like 12 to 18 months beyond what we expected. So we kind of also didn't have a choice. We couldn't afford to hire people. The people who were here that were passionate about the vision of the company were the ones just answering the phone. But a lot of what we did when we architected that platform, which is a bit unique, um, because we're fairly mature entrepreneurs, we were thinking through all the ripples of all of our decisions. So like when I'm building a data structure, for example, you know, it's it's third, fourth, normal form. There's a bunch of tables that exist only one spot forever. And I'm thinking through the UI, the UX, you know, it's a unified data model. So the consumer hits the same data model, the same database effectively as the merchants, as the lenders, as our sponsors. It's all one. Um, as a, we have something called enterprise portal, which is how moment employees manage the ecosystem. So everyone's looking at the same data from a different perspective. So when we analyze these business processes, I'm like, this is customized for a consumer, 
there's a perspective on this that a merchant will also have to leverage and use. So there's a lot of code reuse, um, but there was a lot of attention paid to, I'm going to take all the complexity on the delivery team so that the, the user's perspective can be as simple as humanly possible. And so every time we make a decision, is this going to make somebody's life better, you know, more secure, faster, easier? That's the, that was the decision driver. I think I remember you telling me a few months back that um, your entire data model that you built very early on is pretty much, I think you said 97% identical today, mm -hmm. original thought process. Data model. Yep, it is. And so, wow. I mean, going back to, <laughs> we took a big risk. Yes. We, you know, yes. before 2019, we were with other fintechs. Um, most of the founders were consulting in the fintech industry. So we had known the patterns, like, we understood lenders kept looking for a solution. We understood merchants kept looking for a solution. We understand consumers are complaining about this process. So we had all that input going into everything that we were doing. It wasn't it wasn't us trying to do it in a vacuum. We were trying very much to be a member of a community trying to solve these problems. That makes any sense. So we had a great deal of input. Um, some of the, one of the founders has been a consumer underwriter for 15 years. You know, 15 years of, of input going into the consumer experience for a loan application incredibly valuable, but we take all that feedback, you know? And so when we were architecting the platform, we also built the organization around that type of architecture. And the architecture was also built around that type of organization, as opposed to let's go build some technology and see what happens. No, it was holistically right. thought through. What is my risk team going to need? What is my compliance team going to need? What's my legal team going to need? What are the bank's expectations going to be on interacting with the platform? We tried to be as holistic as possible. It's very challenging, very difficult. Um, and that's how we were able to lay that foundation that allowed us to grow as quickly as we have. Do you think it's possible for for novice entrepreneurs to do something of this complexity versus build some code in the traditional MVP style and see what happens? Right. It, it depends on the entrepreneur, if I'm honest. I mean, most of us are entrepreneurs and we were successful because, you know, we're sort of advanced in our career. Um, if I'm a, and I started a company out of college and I remember looking back, I remember at the time going, I know enough to make this thing successful. And I'm looking back now at my college self you know, 30 years ago, showing my age somewhat going, I didn't know enough, you know, and what I was trying to build at that time was sort of a competitor to what became Amazon, what became um, eBay. And I was like, it was adventurous, you know, it was like, we had all the, <laughs> the college gumption you could possibly have, but it was like, I don't know if I could have built something that complex as a college student. But if I'm, if I'm in an industry, if I'm, if I'm like on the sales side and I've been selling these kinds of products for years and years and years, and my best friend's a technologist or something like that, maybe it's certainly yeah. possible, but it's a great deal of research. And there's a lot of experience behind that. When you started thinking about this, this data model, um, did you, um, was this your full-time job or was, did you kind of know, okay, this is going to be a large upfront big risk. So I'm going to ease into it and, and kind of keep my other day job, if you will, or did you mentally jump right in as well as technologically jump right in all at once? So my background in the FinTech industry was sort of that bridge between the business and the technology sides. And so I had a distinct advantage. Um, my background is mostly technology, sort of bleeding edge, cutting edge technology development. So I, I kind of had that background and a friend of mine, like my, one of my other co-founders, Barkley Keith, looked at me one day and he's like, I don't understand why there isn't technology that answers all these questions in a quick, fast, seamless, you know, loosely coupled computer architecture way. Um, and I said, it's always because, and I kind of said it out loud as I was realizing it, 
most of the players in the place, they started in the in the early 2000s. So they're, they have the burden of all this legacy code and code the architecture strategy has changed so much. Let's just redo it. And he said, and he asked me the question quite point blankly out of in the entire stack, what's the greatest limiting factor, the data model. If I don't have an easily extensible data model, or if I have data that exists in multiple places and I have multiple points of, you know, positions of truth, or I don't know where the single truth truth, truth is, you can't build, you're building a castle in sand. Right. And so over the course of like a four day weekend, I was like, I'm so frustrated with this. This to me, this should be such a simple thing. Here's a data model, you know, and I went into um, Lucid Chart ERD and just built out the tables. And then I hand coded every table because what I also didn't want to have to do was explain to an engineer who wasn't familiar with the industry. Why is the table structure this complicated? And so I just scripted the database, deployed it to Amazon. Database is up and running. There's no data in it. Right. And then working with the, the engineering team to build the front end, to build the APIs and the business logic on top of that. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask you, but how is all the advancement in the generative AI space changing your thinking about your company today? Um, you know, is it, is it meaning, a meaningful shift for you or is it um, more just opportunistic? It's a little bit more opportunistic. I mean, the core piece of data that we use is consumer credit reports. And so it's hard, you know, and we've played with it. We know some people that are attempting to generate data that is indicative of actual consumer behavior and you know, consumer loan performance. It it's such a difficult thing to do. It's one thing to say I can generative, generatively, you know, create an image or generatively create a, 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 a um, I don't know, a script of some sort or a, a document. But to say, okay, AI, please give me accurate. It's really <laughs> difficult. Give me accurate, generate artificial consumer reports on consumer loan performance and behavior. It's just, it's just not there. You know, in a consumer report, you have 200 attributes. So getting and not all attributes exist at their extremes. Like you can't have an 850 FICO that has, that makes $5,000 a year. Generative AI was giving those test cases like that, that you would never see in the real world. Right. So we right. end up spending more time trying to save. There's a noise function on each attribute that you have to say within bounds. I'm like, it's so expensive to do that. I might as well just buy data from the CRP, the credit reporting bureaus and do it that way. Interesting. On the UI UX side, it's more interesting. And so we use some, we use like full story to show, to show us, you know, user pass through the UI and we can feed that to AI to say, based on these passive behavior, patterns of behavior, you should tweak your colors and your, a lot of times it's just contrast. Like your, your blue and your whites don't have enough contrast. I can't pick up the call to action as easily. And so it'll generate layouts, you know, potential layouts or flows through the application that are more efficient necessarily than a user can. But at the same time, the our UI UX people are, are so well-versed in the industry, they're, what they produce is already really close to what AI would recommend anyway. So we, we don't see a lot of benefit on that side. No, I, I appreciate the answer to the question because as you can imagine, um, a lot of people I speak with are finding tremendous you know, leaps with generative mm -hmm. AI. And it's really interesting to hear in your business what you think is really worth diving into and worse, worse, worse it's not yet, right? That might right. change in the future, but for now. It um, will, I'm sure it will. We use Copilot for in, in GitHub to help generate code. Best practices code approach. Yep. And we'll use it sometimes to help generate test cases. That makes sense. And that's what we're seeing a lot of at Stride. We're seeing a ton of CTOs use those tools as well. Um, and some are far along the journey and others are, are less far along. Well, I want to switch base to um, talk about employees for a little bit. So, you know, I, I was a part of a company once that grew really fast. Um, and it was, it, as I was a young employee and it was very interesting and there was a lot of rapid change, different bosses every few months, those sorts of things. 
So how does, how does you know, this pace of scale impacted your employees, do you think? Um, in either positive or negative ways, like what do you think the impact to the teams have been? We've gone through a lot of growing pains, but I'll say the other thing that was very unique to us, you know, there were three, there were three co-founders. There's myself, Lena McDermott and Barkley Keith, and the three of us decided that culture had to be present at the founding. And so Lena, who's also over people and culture, she's, she's the culture champion. And that's one of the three, you know, we have a sort of a three-legged stool, so to speak. Culture is one of those legs. If we didn't have the culture, if we didn't decide culture was important to us, we would Mm -hmm. not be this big today. Absolutely not. Um, but the team has had a lot of growing pains, but the growing pains, you know, it's almost like trauma bonding in some, some sense, you know, we go through these high stress periods and we have each other's back. It just helps us to grow. And because we engender that trust with our, our executive leadership, they engender that trust naturally because it comes down from the top, you know, and sort of, they, they push that trust, that integrity down into their teams. And we see constantly repeatedly over, over and over. If there's a production issue and, and I see an alert as a, as a CTO at, you know, 10, 10 45 at night, I'm hopping on the Google meet, even though yeah. I'm probably not touching a keyboard, checking in code or doing anything like that. I'm there. And oftentimes I'm acting silly and playful because I need the team spirits to be lifted. And so from a, from a culture perspective, we believe very strongly in playfulness, you know, diverge a little bit here. Um, playfulness is a sign of psychological safety. If I can joke yeah. with you and I can be sort of, you know, you make fun of myself then you'll make fun of yourself. You won't take the mistake so seriously. You'll relax. You'll think through it clearly. We'll come to a solution much faster. And so we focus on on those kinds of things. But going through the growing pains of adding, you know, I think one month we had a class of fifty people. Like, how do you? You're, it's, it's a great question. Fifty people are coming through the door. How do you make them all feel at home? Know where they sit in the process. And that goes back to a lot of the process documentation we did. Hey, um, ASPAC call center person, here's the calls you're going to answer. Here's all the most common reasons a person's going to answer the call, and here's what you do. So just get having that documentation and it's light documentation. It's not super deep or heavy. It's just like, here's a process flow. Okay. You thought through this. I have confidence. I understand where I, I sit. And because you're know, going back to psychological safety and the trauma bonding and all the stress, they're pushing that integrity and that trust down. You know, it's, it's sort of innate as part of the fabric of moment. And they can kind of sit more comfortably going, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing, but I have people next to me that I can trust that will take care of me that are looking out for my best interest. And so as long as you sort of engender that, yeah, no, I actually read somewhere a couple of years ago that companies that have like the answer for everything written out for every employee actually do worse because there is no sense of ownership or agency and there's no sense of culture. <laughs> They're just mindlessly reading through a script. Yeah, I'm a robot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And when when something goes off script, they all they know how to do is say no versus right. get creative and help the customer. Yeah, and so we focus on that. Like there's a fine line to balance. I want to give you the support to do your job, but I don't want to tell you what word to use every sentence. Right. And I, and I, and I, and I, I've seen that work across the board, across industry, across team size. So I, I love that you, you do that. Now you said a class of 50 people, do you have official like onboarding training programs uh, with, we do. with classes of people? We do. We try to time the onboardings to twice a month, depending on the size of the class. Everyone goes through the class. Everyone whoever's in that class, you know, we'll have a, a risk person, a software engineer, an ASPEC, come through the class at the same time, they get the same default training. Here's Moment, here's how Moment operates, here's our cultural values. Everyone sort of gets that baseline. How how long is the training? What do you find is the best length for something like that? That's a good question. I, I don't, it's probably half a day, oh, maybe. Okay. You know, okay. so your first day is a couple of hours of training and then also your accounts provisions. Here's your laptop, here's how you log in everything. The next day is more getting comfortable with logging into the systems. So it's not, it's not like some companies have six week long boot camps. No, nothing like that. Nothing. No. Just <laughs> no. a brief alignment. 
right. with your team, focus on yep. company culture and values and things like that. Okay. Anything, you know, I, you know, your journey is, is, is still being written, but anything that you would call out that you might have done differently, um, knowing what you know now, and also bringing all of your past experience to the table. Yeah. I mean, I kind of mentioned earlier, before we started the company, we really did take a holistic view of what we were building, you know? So as I'm building out, um, the architecture, I'm working with Lena who owns product. She's looking at the, the, the user interfaces and experiences thinking through, she's also the operations officer thinking through how, when a spec calls, when somebody calls into the call center merchant or consumer, how do I get them the information they need in a click or two? You know, we're just thinking through the whole thing holistically. Um, and that's really the challenge. A lot of younger entrepreneurs or someone who's new to an industry will, like I said earlier, they'll, they'll think about this one thing and man, they may have, they may have the best mousetrap for this one little thing, but they're not thinking through when somebody calls in, I've made it hype really complicated to get to an answer. Yeah, and so it was really that holistic thinking and then taking the risk of, well, we're going to build the whole thing. We're not going to get started small. We're going to get started big because it only works at scale. And so as you look forward, right? So you have had this success. You are, um, you feel good about the approach you've taken and it's proven out, right? Um, the employees are culturally aligned. The product is adding real value to its target market. Um, as you think about the next one to three years, what do you think is kind of like critical to your success? Um, is it more of the same? Is it is it any one thing that that you need to lean on in a different way than you've let, let uh, leaned on in the past? Like, what do you think are your critical success factors? Um, it's, it sounds boring, but it's kind of more the same. You know, we need to continue to focus on culture and our people to make sure our people are, are happy and fulfilled, um, and then continue to add on. Serve additional services. So moments of financial services delivery platform, the first financial services, unsecured consumer installment loans at the moment of need. So maybe we go into secured lending or maybe we start delivering um, insurance products at the moment of need. And, you know, the platform was meant to be vertically agnostic. We're in home, home improvement elective healthcare. So we'll start going into general retail, you know, maybe auto lending, maybe, you know, something like that. And then going back to additional financial services that we can deliver that point of need. Some merchants have expressed interest in opening banks. Some lenders have said, if you have a consumer merchant open a bank account, then, you know, we can give them better rates on the lending, stuff like that. So it's just the continued evolution of the path we're on. Okay. Excellent. Um, and I just, I just have one more question that I haven't been asking people lately, but I'll ask, um, are you, are, are, if you're scaling, continuing to scale, are you hiring? Because, a lot of people aren't. Um, and if you happen to be, that might be interesting to folks listening. So, uh, yes, always hiring. Um, always looking for right people. We do, we do very believe, believe very strongly. If I find like a, a superstar out there and I don't have a role, we'll make a role for them okay. or we'll hire them early while we develop the role that they'll go into. Um, and we expect to be hiring again, probably at the end of first quarter into second quarter. Okay, great. Excellent. Um, and then we'll have a link to your company in the, in the notes and everything. So people, um, can find you and all that good stuff um, if they want to reach out. Um, so we are we are sadly out of time. Uh, that's it for today's episode of Scaling Tech. Brian, thank you so much for sharing this unique and successful um, experience yeah. journey. And I wish you a ton of success moving forward. So thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Bye everyone. Hey everyone. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe, Give it five stars and more importantly, share it with someone that you think will benefit from listening. And remember, as always, think about the one to two key takeaways that you can apply today to help you and your team achieve your goals. Until then, keep iterating.